Hey friends, I'm Ashley. Hey you guys, I'm Lainey. And this is Haunted Real Estate. tardiness on getting episodes out. Um, We have had a lot of scheduling conflicts, so recording just couldn't happen, but we're here now. Hey, Lainey. Hey. Not quite knowing if this episode is going to come out um, after Christmas. I actually think it will come out after Christmas. So in that case, I hope you guys had an amazing Christmas. Absolutely jolly and full of love and wonderful family time or friend time. Yes. So as we record this, it is not Christmas yet, but we have our big uh, big family Christmas stuff coming up next week. So we're looking forward to some really awesome seafood gumbo and our brother is off. So the whole family will be there. I'm super excited. So today we are back into the Tales of the Triangles. Yes, I love the triangles. It's my and favorite shape. <laughs> oh, reminds me of Kramer. Isosceles Kramer. <laughs> so, in case you didn't look at the episode title, we are in the Bermuda Triangle, um, but we are really going to stay focused in the Everglades today because I have always found the Everglades fascinating, but like more than anything, incredibly mysterious. Oh yeah, absolutely. Just an interesting place. So people tend to put the tip of the Bermuda Triangle in Miami. I knew you were going to giggle at that. (laughs) Just Uh, the tip? Just the tip. Okay. In Miami, of course, which is off the coast of Florida, but 43 minutes from Miami is the Everglades. So the debate as to where the triangle actually ends and begins is up for debate. But like we talked about this in the Alaskan Triangle, there are more like loose suggestions or ideas as to where we kind of think it is, uh, but they don't really have like exact boundaries. So my personal opinion, due to the strangeness of the Everglades, I'm definitely putting it on the triangle. Um, And if you know anything about the Florida Everglades, you know it's prime real estate for body dumping and is the home of Dexter Morgan. Exactly. Yeah. He's in, well, yeah, he's in Miami, which is very close and it's just shrouded in mystery. So it's the only place in the world with both alligators and crocodiles, which naturally also helps in disposing of dead bodies. There are hundreds of open cases from bodies that were found there. Now that is hundreds of cases from more recent decades just of bodies found there. So you have to imagine that's actually way higher because obviously some bodies just are never going to be found. Yeah, they've been consumed. So since 1965, there's over 175 unsolved murders that have taken place in the Everglades. Again, That's just from bodies found. There's a ton of missing people. And we're actually going to go over two missing people that really captured my attention. I wasn't even going to talk about missing people today, like not focus on anything specific. But this one sucked in my attention. um, But I was like, I feel like I need to go ahead and share this. So what's even more sad, though, is that there are bull sharks, alligators, crocodiles, like we said, and they take care of the bodies. And bull sharks, people. Bull sharks. (laughs) Bullshit. Um, So you have... 
you you do have predators there. And not to mention, which I will mention later, the python invasion. Like, the invasive... The invasion of The invasion of the pythons. Well, there is an invasion, and they are invasive... Yes. So it's also interesting that the Florida Peninsula is limestone and it's surrounded by water. So what does that mean? It's a conductor of energy. Mike Ricksecker in Alaska's Mysterious Triangle that we, of course, talked about when we did Alaskan Triangle. And I did mention this before, but in case you haven't listened to that episode or you don't remember, he also visited the conjuring house that was built over a well and had limestone walls. And it is believed that that is why there's so much strange activity in that house. So Florida is its own sort of conductor of that weird energy, the peninsula anyway. So do you think that's why all the Florida man jokes where that comes from? Because it's a crazy conductor creates crazy people doing weird things. Well, I don't want to say it's like crazy people, but if there is a weird energy there, it might make people do (laughs) strange things. I don't know. But weird things happen there. And just to clarify, we have family that lives in Florida. Casey and I do. We love Florida. So that is not a slight on Florida. Okay. So let's get into some of the backstory because the Everglades is not new territory. And you know, I like history. So let's go into a little bit of a backstory of the Everglades first. So natives settling around Lake Oki and then south into the Everglades. So Native Americans, they started settling that area about 5,000 years ago. And it's still, and back then, is a prime place for hunting and fishing. So the Everglades, even though it looks like a giant swampland, is actually a slow-moving river. And it flows south from Lake Okeechobee, which is Florida's largest lake, and was thousands of years ago, like, almost twice as big as it is now. Oh, wow. So it was huge. And then from the river that goes through the Everglades, it drains out into the Gulf of Mexico. Um, So there are few dry areas due to the limestone. There are few dry areas due to the limestone because water doesn't penetrate it very well. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why there's a lot of sitting water. So it creates these wetlands. You say wetlands or wetlands? Wetlands. I feel like wetlands. I always said wetlands and now I'm like wetlands. Well, yeah, especially that if you're weird saying it a lot in your head, then it's like, oh no, I've been saying this wrong forever. Yeah. Or it loses wetlands. all meaning because you say it so many times. Wetlands. Wetlands. Okay. So to live on it also for the Native Americans living on it makes it fairly safe from like human type type invasion, like invasion from their enemies. So it it maybe was a really great spot to live. Wildlife maybe was even their biggest enemy because we know the wildlife there is, well, there's a ton of it. Yeah, it's a hodgepodge of all different kinds of species. Exactly. So according to the National Park Service, around 1000 BC, which would be over 3000 years ago, the Calusa Indians inhabited the area. They had a highly organized society with canoe trails, shell works, and tools, and they like really used the shells to make a lot of their tools. They really utilized the land as many Native American tribes do. So their empire is estimated to have been around 50,000 people. And then in the 1500s, the Spanish came. The Calusa tribe was the first indigenous people that they met. Ponce de Leon in 1513 was actually attacked by Calusa war canoes. And then we pretty much know how it went after that when the Europeans came to the Americas for the Native Americans. They brought death and disease and really decimated the Native American populations. So by the 1700s, the Calusa Indians were pretty much gone. So other Native American groups, including the Seminoles and the Mikosuke tribes and Anglo-American settlers in the area became known as the Gladesmen. Oh, I like that. Yeah. They lived off the land. They hunted, fished, and sold alligator hides, turtles, frogs, fish, egret feathers, rabbits, deer, and more. 
What's an egret? It's a type of bird. Could have gathered that with feathers, but I mean, you. I don't know what, how else to describe that. Um, I'm pretty sure it's like a water loving bird. Okay. Here, why don't like we a just pelican? Like get a pelican egret. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. They've got the long legs so that they can, like, not get their bodies all wet in the water and stay out of the mud. Yeah. Um, so in 1947, the Everglades was established as a national park. It's 1.5 million acres of protected land. The Everglades average four to five feet deep, so it's very marshy, but like you can walk in most of it. Uh-huh. Um, I think the deepest points of the Everglades is like nine feet. Ugh, but I most of it is. I don't want to be in that deep at all. That thought. No. Uh, no, that is scary. And there's a lot feet, of things. That would be like up, up to my chest level. Like it's a lot I can't see of my body. Yeah. No, that is a lot. And a lot you cannot see down, down below. below. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it's got tall blade-like grass on top. And then, of course, then a few feet of water. So when it was first explored by settlers, they literally thought, what a waste of land. Look at this, like, just swampy territory. And many people wanted to drain it. And then even, like, Florida was trying to pass legislation to drain the Everglades, which would have been a really big deal. I mean, it's an entire ecosystem. Absolutely. Um, So thankfully to conservationists and people that do care about the ecosystem, they saved it from being drained. It is home to 300 fish species, 360 bird species, bull sharks, and like we said, tons of reptiles. The Everglades have only two seasons, wet season, which is May to November, and dry season, December to April. And fun fact, it's believed that Florida holds an abundance of treasure that has yet to be found, like treasure from pirates. Very cool. Which, of course, would probably be near the coast. So the Everglades, Miami, like any of those it's areas. a great spot to put it if you don't want anyone to find exactly. it. Exactly. Because you have to be brave or stupid to go I, hunting. I'm telling you, the Everglades has so many secrets and probably a lot of treasure. I mean, yeah, I can't, whether imagine. that be from pirates or something, I can't say, but it's, it's, it's just seen so much. And like, even I was talking to you about that flight for 401, I believe mm-hmm. that crash landed in the Everglades. Like, yeah, I do bring that up, but I'm not going into <clears throat> a story on it. Yeah. But like people's bodies, like what all is under there that you can't see? Yeah, exactly. So there's a lot hiding under all the vegetation. Cause talk about the, like the land, like reclaiming everything because there's old dilapidated buildings and stuff and it just everything just grows around it yeah on top of it and it just swallows it back up that's just a little bit of a brief overview of the everglades before we get to our stories for today um it has a very long history so i don't just want to go by without mentioning that native americans live there like it's been an important land to a lot of people before we get into just like the weird things about the everglades plus the bermuda triangle seems like it's more recent history so people inhabited that area for thousands of years And according to many people that have visited, it is very much like stepping back in time. It is not heavily populated and oftentimes can be a very dangerous place to be if you are not prepared to be in that kind of wilderness. But they, like people have said that it's got a completely different energy, probably because there's not a lot of people there. And it's very much like about the wildlife, Mm -hmm. but it's not an area like there's not a ton of buildings. There's not a ton of roads. Like a lot of it is not drivable. So accessing it is different. It's like we're a guest and it's it's home, it's environment. Mm-hmm. Whereas 
humans like to take over everything and claim them as theirs, but Everglades is claimed. Exactly. I think that's a good way to put it. You're a guest in the Everglades, so be a polite guest when you go to visit. So the first story today takes us back into the 1800s. This is Edgar J. Watson, a.k.a. Bloody Ed, and the infamous Everglades serial killer. So Edgar Watson was born on November 11th, 1855. He had a very abusive father, so he fled from South Carolina when he was fairly young, along with his mother and sister, to escape the violent abuse. His father was not only abusive to them, but he would fight just about anybody. Like, he was just a violent person out in public. It's not like he's one of these guys who puts on a fake face in front of everybody, and then it's, like, just to his family. It's yeah. it's just to everybody. He's just an ass. Lovely. So they ended up, Edgar, his sister, and his mother in Fort White, Florida, which is in the Panhandle. So they were not in the Everglades area at this time. So he remained there through childhood. As he grew up, he began displaying violent tendencies, which his mother really did try to do everything she could to prevent this, especially like in the 1800s, escaping your husband was like not a widely accepted thing to do. Yeah. Like you're supposed to stick it out. But she did. Like she escaped it. She said this was like bad for the kids. So she tried to do right by him. But unfortunately, Edgar still became scum of the earth. So whether he became that way because of genetics or just having been witness to abuse at such a young age, we don't really know. But he was becoming worse than his father. He was a very violent man himself. He was often in physical fights, which eventually led to his first murder. After his first murder, he fled to Oklahoma, where he would meet another infamous lady outlaw, Belle Star. So the legend of Belle Star is probably bigger than reality of what her actual crimes were. She was a criminal. Myra Maybell Shirley, and then married later Sam Star, which is how she got the Star last name. Uh, she grew up during the Civil War, which imagine that being a big part of your childhood. <laughs> like fighting in your own front yard. Yeah. Like war. I that's can't. crazy. No. Like that's got to mess you up. It really shapes a person into something. That has to. Like you have to like be grown up at seven, you know, like shit. They yeah. might have handed you a musket and like that's just a bonkers time. So her for, uh, family supported the Confederacy during the war and did try to help with the Confederacy agenda. So Belle Starr was often around other criminals. Sam Starr, her husband, was part Cherokee. His family often harbored criminals that would include Jesse James. Oh. So Sam was also a criminal and it's up for debate how much she truly was involved like with him in his criminal activities, but she did supposedly have at least one pistol on her at all times, but sometimes even like two. She was imprisoned at least three times and Sam Starr was killed in 1886. So at this point, she tried to stay out of nefarious activities and tried to just lead a quiet life. Oh, maybe learn from her lessons. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. And then here comes Edgar Watson, who needs a place to live. So she was like, okay, I will rent out this land to you. But she did not know that he was also a criminal and a murderer. She seems to be a magnet for them. When she did discover, which wasn't too long after he moved in, when she did discover his criminal history and that he was a murderer on the run, she tried to kick him off her land. And her, like, she was on parole, and a part of her parole is she was not to be consorting with criminals. And she could definitely not be harboring them. So I wonder how that like gossip spread because you can't just Google someone like if you had a tenant and be like, oh, he's a child predator or something. But like, yeah, who told her all of his crimes? Yeah, that's a good point. I I don't know how you'd find that out. Like, did you catch a newspaper from Florida that said it or I don't know. 
must have been like Edgar's in town and he's supposedly did this. Yeah. Keep an eye out for maybe, him. Yeah, maybe there were wanted signs around. Steal um, your cattle. Because this was in Oklahoma. Okay. After he had left Florida. So there there had to be something around that she saw. Man, she needs to wash that man right out, out of her hair. hair. <laughs> exactly. So authorities believe that Edgar Watson ambushed Belle Star and shot her to death in the back. Oh shit, I wasn't expecting her untimely death so soon. Uh-huh. I thought she was going to partner with him. No, no. She actually tried to get rid of him and was like, I can't be a part of this. I cannot harbor you. You need to leave. And being the ass that he is, he shot her in the back after she asked him to leave. Like, you know how that is. Shooting somebody in the back, you're like, okay. Coward. Unfortunately, well, he did get arrested, but unfortunately, due to the fact that there were no witnesses and it being the 1800s of it all, they didn't have any evidence to go on. So he did get released, but people were like, he's the murderer. We just can't arrest him on nothing. Yeah. So nobody was ever brought to justice for the murder of Bell Star, but he did it. Did they really care because she was previously? Um, I mean, I think they cared in the sense that she was trying at that time to do the right thing and she was clearly trying to not harbor a criminal. Yeah. That they that, that they did care. And yeah. they certainly weren't like, go Edgar, you shot. I mean, she wasn't <laughs> a murderer as far as we know. Like her crimes, I think, were much more petty. Yeah. You know, being a thief or something is not the same as being a killer. No? No. Okay. So after he was released he decides it's time to go back to florida and this is where he decides he's gonna go to the everglades but on the way to the everglades he was still murdering he knifed a man named quinn bass to death he also escaped those charges but he was definitely suspected but nobody could positively identify him oh my gosh this guy gets away with so much and like I don't really consider this a real true crime podcast, so obviously I'm not getting into like the real nitty gritty here, but he gets away with so freaking much. And then in Lake City, he had a dispute with another man named Sam Tolan that he ended up shooting to death and again, got arrested, but then was acquitted of that murder. So the sheriff told him probably something to the effect of, we know you did this. Mm -hmm. You need to never come back to Lake City again. And Watson never did. He was like, okay, goes to the Everglades. So the Everglades he was thinking was this perfect place for him to hide and probably get away from not only his past crimes, but his future crimes as well. So he purchased 40 acres of land from the Louisville and Nashville Railroad Company along the Chatham Bend River. He built a farmhouse and he learned how to farm and harvest sugar grain. He would eventually parlay this into a new shirt business called Island Pride. I don't know why I'm shocked. He's he's doing pretty good. I mean, he's still a bad guy, but I'm surprised he took on a skill and... uh, start a business there's a little entrepreneur in him yeah yeah exactly like i mean a lot of murderers love money and he wanted a way to make money yeah but the way he's gonna do it is still gonna be yeah connie like con artisty not <laughs> connie but you know what i mean like yeah like he's just he cons people but sugar like i said blah, blah, blah. Sugar cane plantations are not a one-man job. He needed laborers for this. So he would travel around, like literally would go out of town, and he would find people to work his farm. Which already is a little sus, because like, you're not looking for anybody local. Yeah. You want to make sure they're from out of town, and you want to make sure nobody knows them. Mm -hmm. So being the scum of the earth that he is, he never actually paid anybody to work his land. Instead, when it was payday... He would just murder the laborers, throw them down the river, hope the gators would take them or whatever. That nature would just take care of their bodies. Dang, that's like a whole system of, because mm-hmm. you need constant laborers. Yes, exactly. Just and again, they're from out of town. Them out. So nobody like really knows this is happening. Yeah. But I, I, I want to say as luck would have it, but it wasn't that lucky. Not all the bodies were claimed by 
nature. Many did float down rivers and ended up in other populated towns. And so suspicion started to grow, but was not immediately placed on Watson because he got his laborers from out of town. So when these bodies would show up, nobody knew who these people were. They can't be like, oh, I know them. They're from that town further north. Yeah. So growing more confident in his plan to never pay and just murder laborers, he decided he needed to purchase more land from the Tucker family. So the Tuckers were well-known farmers in the area by other local farmers. Uh, their land was located on Lost Man's River. Watson tried to evict them from Wait, the... is it called Lost Man's River because of all the murdered laborers? No. Did they just change the name? No, it's, that's unrelated. <laughs> okay. Watson tried to get the Tuckers off the land. I don't know what original agreement they had. I think it was like you can live here until like you harvest this next harvest and then you can go. Whatever happened, he decided it would just be quicker if I murdered this whole family and then I could have the land now. I can't imagine that mindset. I know. Like, you know what? If I just offed you, this would just be so much easier. (laughs) Like, what? What a weird way of thinking. I know. So he did, he murdered the family. It was at this point where people did start to turn their attention to him and he got a little bit worried. So what he did was he passed the buck to his foreman, Leslie Cox, but nobody believed him. But he literally was like, guys, it was Leslie that killed this family. It was Leslie that's doing this stuff. And they were like, I'm not buying it. Um, So locals reported the crime to the Lee County Sheriff, Frank Tippins, but due to the fact that there was a jurisdiction issue, the sheriff could not do anything. So a man named William Brown, who was the guy that initially helped Watson learn the sugarcane business. Like he taught him how to farm it, harvest it, all that stuff. He went to the sheriff and let him know that locals were growing very angry about Edgar Watson and that there was a plot to kill him because he was definitely a murderer and they were pissed that nothing was happening. So again, the sheriff said, we don't have jurisdiction in that area. There's nothing we can do. So the last straw was a little boy had fled Chatham Bend and made his way to Chokoloski, which by the way, was only accessible by boat at the time. So this little boy had to escape Watson. I don't know what he did there, if he was like a kid of a laborer or or what that situation was, but made it through the marshy area before he got to Chokoloski, which was a more populated area and where the main store was that everybody, including Edgar, had to go get supplies from. Mm -hmm. So he made it there. He told them that Edgar Watson, now known as Bloody Ed, he was a witness to murder, that the boy was a witness to a murder um, that Edgar had done. done. That I was like, where's <laughs> the end of that sentence? Executed. <laughs> uh, yes. So he was a witness to it. Uh, the boy took the people to a grave of a woman named Hannah Smith. She was six feet tall and 300 pounds. So big she, girl. she had been larger than Watson's other victims. So therefore a little harder to hide. He had unintentionally, or maybe it was just due to the weather and it being a marshy area. He had unintentionally left a leg sticking out of the ground. Um, But like I said, like, is it, was that him doing that or is it just, I mean, it's a marshy area. It's wet. The tides change, storms come in, you know, who knows what happened there. But this was the last straw for the citizens of Chokoloski. So one wild they all knew he's a killer. I know. And then you're like, what the hell? Like, we can't do anything. Like exactly how much time do you think passed? Are we talking weeks or months that you think that people knew about this? That's wild. I think months. I think time, things move slower back then because 
because it's not like phone calls away, you know, so yeah. everything is so much slower. But can you imagine, like, think of this more locally. Like, you know there's a murderer on your street. Like, you see people go into their house and disappear, and then the cops are like, like well, we you're can't. You're looking at a particular house right now. Well, I just kind of look know. down my street. No, I don't have a person in mind, but I'm just, like, looking down my street. If I'm like, no, I see people go in, and nobody ever comes out. Like, something is wrong. Yeah, that would be And wild. the police are like, well, I can't. That's not my jurisdiction. Like, oh, my God. Like, I would. I feel like I would feel like I have to take it into my own hands. Yeah. Because you can't. I, can't, I couldn't live by that. So one day, October 1910, just after a hurricane had passed, Cocky Watson, just living his life, took his boat down to Smallwood's store. Cocky Watson? Yeah. Because he's, in my mind, he's just like, he gets in his canoe, he's whistling his way down, and just like, living my life, I'm murdering anybody that gets in my way. He took his boat down to a small wood store in Chokolowski to get supplies post-storm. And he was met by an angry mob of townspeople. Sweet. So he tried to defend himself and was like, whoa, 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 guys, let me explain. My foreman, Leslie Cox, murdered that family. I didn't. I'm a good dude. To save everybody the worry of a murderer on the loose, I went ahead and I killed Leslie Cox for you guys. I'm a hero, not a murderer. FYI, not an actual quote, but how I imagine the conversation went. But he even held Cox's hat that had a bullet hole in it to try and use that as evidence for his story. Like, look, you guys, I did kill him. Mm Mm-hmm. So he said that he killed him, the body had fallen into the water, and then got lost, but hoped that the hat was sufficient evidence that he took care of the real murderer. But Watson, I don't even think, like, even had he showed Cox's dead body, wouldn't have helped him. Like, all that makes it look like is you just murdered another person. That doesn't prove that he's a bad guy. Not helping the angry mob in front of you. No. Uh, Thankfully, the townspeople did not believe him, and so they took him. And like before they were going to kill him, they were like, look, we are taking you to be investigated. They did try to let the justice system work again. But Watson, knowing that he was, this was not going to go well in his favor because now there's a lot more evidence against him and he has a lot of past crimes that he's clearly gotten away with. And he killed a very well-known family in the area. So now you just done pissed off a bunch of people. Yeah. So he drew his shotgun and attempted to fire. Funnily enough, the gun failed because the gun held paper shells that got wet from the hurricane's flooding. <laughs> so that did not work. <laughs> so after he clearly tried to shoot them, he was like, oh shit. Then he tried to pull his pistol out of his coat and everybody saw what was happening. And so the crowd started shooting at him. Love this. So he was shot dead and they buried him in a shallow grave and they put coral rocks on top of him so that he would not float off into the river. Three weeks later, Watson's son-in-law, because He actually did have a family. Yeah, I forgot about that at the beginning. Watson's son-in-law dug up Watson's body and took him to be buried in Fort Myers Cemetery. Bill Brown, Williams Brown's son, the guy who taught Watson how to be a sugarcane farmer, who was six years old at the time of the murder, would tell the story to his grandchildren just like many Everglades pioneers did. In 2010, they did a reenactment at the Smallwood store of the murder of Edgar Watson. And the Smallwood store is still open today over 100 years later oh wow so it was actually that store was established in 1906 so it's actually in 2023 117 years old wow so the national park service actually burned watson's house in 1950 um, after chase chatham ben became part of the national park Um, but there is a sign there that reads watson's place where wow his property was that's crazy that's a fun story 
Yep, so that's the story of the infamous serial killer of the Everglades, Edgar Watson, who killed countless people because he's a selfish, cheap asshole. I love it. I love when the the townspeople get together and yes. handle business. There's a story I read or listened to not too long ago that's happened earlier than, you know, early 1900s, but it was like the town bully who, you know, beat his wife and he, he threatened to kill, like, the old man at the grocery store and, like, Finally, everyone had enough, so they all circled him as he was, like, trying to beat his wife and, like, got her out, and they all took turns shooting him, and then when the authorities came, none of them, they were like, we don't know who did it. They all, like, banded together and were like, didn't see anything. Wow. He was shot, like, 60 times. Way to unite, you guys. I know. Yeah, people like that, I mean, you can understand, especially, like, I hate when there is some legal issue where you cannot bring a known criminal, especially a murderer, yeah. to justice. Or it's like cocky asshole too. Or like, it's like, deserves- oh, it's a clerical error. Oh, the, and you're like, oh my gosh, everything we had against this person was for nothing. I mean, that's just not right. I mean, no. letting them back out to wait for them to do it again. That's I mean, why it's people just get so angry because like we're getting upset thinking about it. Like that would piss me off. The more it keeps happening, the more people are not doing anything, yeah. more likely I'm going to start banning up my neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. Come on, guys. So I'm not, like I said earlier, I'm not going to talk about Flight 401 just because it has been done recently by the Mr. Ballin podcast and on Morbid. So I really didn't want to like do another story about it. But of of course, I'm going to mention it because it did happen in the Everglades. I do love that story. So it is the infamous flight that crashed December 29th, 1972, flying from JFK in New York to the Miami airport. So they were right there at the airport. I know. No, that whole landing fiasco bothers me. This was famous because the crash was so tragic and it was all over the fact that there was a bulb out in the gear light and so nobody noticed that the autopilot had been turned off and they lost altitude. But it's mostly famous for the fact that that plane was fairly new and so they still took the parts off that plane and put it on other planes. And so the Flight 401 passengers are said to haunt those planes. So it is a really interesting story. So if you would like to go check it out separately, uh, Morbid and Mr. Ballin Podcast both have done it. Oh, go listen. It's so cool. So many of the flight attendants and crew. like And the pilot. Yes, but like there's so many people that worked for that airline that were told to stop talking about it or you'll lose your job because they didn't want to scare passengers. It's crazy. So, um, yeah, I didn't want to go by without mentioning it in some form or fashion. It's a very well-known Everglades story. Um, Not only are those planes with the 401 parts supposedly haunted, but so is the crash site that claimed 101 lives that day. So, in the Everglades, there is also a ghost city. Literally known as Ghost City or Lost City in the middle of the region. So, oh, it hit the floor, uh, Fort Lauderdale News um, as a sort of, dis- like, they discovered this lost city in September 1949. So I actually went back to newspapers.com and was, like, looking at the news articles. Cool. The lost city then and today is very difficult to find. It's not, again, there's not, like, roads directly accessing it. And they don't really talk about it very much, which is interesting because it, it makes you really wonder what the heck is going on over there. Yeah, why they don't want people to know about it. Yeah, the lost city. Could um, you imagine signs like Lost City this way? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so is it still lost? 
It's about eight miles south of Alligator Alley, which is one of the roads that cuts through the area. Where on Alligator Alley? Because it's just a long road. I don't know where eight miles south, what that actually means. Yeah. There are no paths to get there and you're not going to just like Google map your way to it, which in and of itself makes it more mysterious that it's like not on a map technically. And the fact that it's been talked about it by many media outlets, you think there would be info on where it is. Yeah. Or like they try to profit off of it by making it a place to go visit. Come look at the Lost City, but they're not. Can your little fan boat go to Lost City? Yeah. So if you can find it, there is a three acre settlement that it's believed what once belonged to was a seminal sediment. So uh, sediment, seminal settlement. Those were really hard for me to say. Yeah, that is hard. Which I said earlier was a Native American population in the Florida Peninsula. Side note, the Seminoles were alligator wrestlers. It was literally one of their pastimes. Like, Well, when we, back to our very first episode in Galveston, they were, um... Oh, God, hit the table. They were alligator wrestlers, too. Oh, remember the the was? Yeah. Oh, I forgot about that. You know what? If you're a Native from... Texas, Louisiana, or Florida, you may have been an alligator wrestler. I mean, I can see it. They're in these areas. Primarily Florida and then Louisiana, like Texas is kind of third on the list with that. But yeah, yeah, alligators are, they're present. Yeah, you might as well, I'd rather know how to wrestle one than attempt to run from one. Yeah. So there was no clear reason as to why the settlement was abandoned, but it is believed it was just abruptly abandoned one day. Um, they have found artifacts, including canoes that date back to as much as 2000 years ago. From Fort Lauderdale News article, they say bones of humans, animals, broken Indian canoes, pot shards, copper cauldrons, and every kind of habitation debris were scattered among the dozens of rotting buildings located on the jungle grown hammock. So Jungle-grown hammock. Yeah. So lots of things have been found there. But like I said, like we're keeping this super mysterious. It's not, there's not a ton of information on the lost city. Like just enough. So you're like, I believe it's real. Like it's there. And I want more info. Right. And there's some pictures of like from 1949 where they were going through the debris and all that stuff. But as the article implied, there are some dilapidated or maybe it's just rubble at this point cabins. Who lived there? We don't know. They're not as ancient as the seminal artifacts that were found. So, I mean, it could be anyone's guess, but they do have ideas. There were rumors that dozens of Confederate soldiers used the area to escape the Civil War after they supposedly stole some gold from the Union, which leads people to believe that there may be gold there. Wow. Um, Even today. But more recently, not that recent, but more recently than, you know, the 1860s, it was used by none other than Al Capone. Oh my gosh, this guy is everywhere. I know. So I put in here, I was like, I feel like your stories are unintentionally related to Ed and Lorraine Warren, and then mine unintentionally go back to Al Capone. Like, I had no idea Al Capone was somehow (laughs) related into the Everglades. It's funny. I mean, I'm pretty sure he died in Miami. Please don't quote me on that, because I need to look that up. Like, so I know he's been to Florida, but... I would not have thought that for a single second. Yeah, definitely not my first thought. But it was believed that he used the Lost City as a site for 
bootlegging during prohibition. It was a bootlegging operation. Um, so Al Capone made most of his money through bootlegging um, during the time since alcohol was illegal. He produced moonshine there because, of course, it was isolated and it was hard to find. So it would be hard to get caught. Yeah. Um, iron kettles have been found that are used were used to extract alcohol from sugarcane. So he was using that sugarcane there to make moonshine. So who knows the state of the lost city today? Many people do not know about it. And those that do, it remains mostly a mystery as to what the heck happened there. Yeah. So if y'all know anything about the lost city, I want to know. Like, tell me what is going on there. Yeah, I just looked up and it says possible Al Capone site that pops up. Interesting. There's not a lot to see, though. Yeah, no, there's there's not. And like the pictures are definitely black and white, 1949 in the newspaper. So they're not that easy to tell to even like tell. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Interesting. So like we said, the Everglades is vast and it's easy to go missing. So what we're going to talk about next is two missing people. Okay. So it it is kind of sad. It's a little bit heavier than what we normally do. The current missing people that might still be alive or this old stories. No, it's, they could, I mean, age wise, yes, they could still be alive, but they are most likely not. So there's several open cases of missing persons, but these two really stuck with me because I was literally just going to be like, here's some of the high profile missing cases and just give like a very brief summary. But I got sucked into a very long and thorough article about these two missing people that just was like, you know what? I'm going to just talk about these two missing people. Yeah. This is Felipe Santos and Terrence Williams. Men that don't know, never knew each other, but will forever be connected. So Felipe Santos, who is Mexican, had gotten into a car accident and the deputy called to the scene was Deputy Stephen Cocken at 6.55 a.m. So unfortunately, Santos did not have a license or insurance, so there was technically cause to arrest him. He had to get into the patrol car and was never seen again. What? He was never technically arrested. He just vanished. So the Uh, patrol man put him in the car, turned around, and then he was gone? Yeah. So Felipe Santos... Oh, the policeman did it. Case yes. solved. <laughs> there you go. Yes. Stephen Cawkin. Well, sorry, I can't say that definitively. Stephen Cawkin, a white sheriff's deputy and a known racist, has two people that are connected that are missing that are non-white. Oh, God. Um, so Felipe Santos had been with his brother. He got into this car accident. He was technically not a legal citizen. So for reasons that he got into the patrol car, it looked like he was being arrested, but he was not arrested. There's no record of him being arrested. Mm -hmm. He just vanished. When like asked about it, Stephen Cawkin said that he decided to give Santos a citation instead of arresting him. Cawkin also claimed, that's the deputy sheriff or sheriff deputy, I'm sorry, uh, claimed that he dropped off Santos at the Circle K, which was down the street. It was a few blocks away with no proof that that even happened either. Okay. Uh, Calkins reported that there was the all clear of the crash at 7.35 a.m., which at that point he took Santos to his vehicle is what he said. Okay. But what I'm going to point out, taking Santos to the Circle K made no sense. Like he was with his brother, Mm -hmm. got into this car accident, this fender bender. Santos had apparently called like his foreman at his job who was on his way to come pick him up. Okay. Calkins, the deputy, took him to Circle K For for why? Yeah. Like that doesn't make any sense. He said he could have left him where he was. He didn't want to leave him near his car because he thought he'd illegally get in his car again Mm -hmm. and then drive off. 
So he thought, I'll take him down to the Circle K where he can't get into his car. But now he's also separated from his brother and the person coming to pick him up is going to so be at the wrong place. still in the car? Well, his brother stayed at the scene. Okay. And then just Santos was, looks like he was going to be arrested, but never was arrested. Like there's no record that the sheriff's office has that okay. this was ever an arrest. And then Calkin said that he left them at Circle K and doesn't know what happened to him after that. So he could have left him where he was if he had no intention of arresting him. So that's weird. So Calkins was like, here's what I'll do. I'll take him in my patrol car. I'll drive a few blocks down and drop him off there, which makes no sense. Uh, Like I said, he could have waited for his friend to arrive to pick him up if he had no intention of arresting him and then just make sure he didn't get back in his vehicle to illegally drive again. Yeah. Another weird, mysterious thing to Santos going missing was he issued him three citations. Of the three citations, there are two different signatures. And in the signatures, which do not match Felipe Santos, by the way, the middle names are different in two of the signatures. Huh. But it appears that it also did not match Stephen Calkins' handwriting either. Of course, I kind of feel like handwriting can be faked, but maybe not. I don't know. I feel like that too, because my own handwriting, I have like three different versions. One's when I'm like trying to write pretty. One's like when I'm in a hurry. And then sometimes I'm written too much, so it gets like fatter letters. Yeah. That, I mean, mine does. I feel like I have pretty inconsistent handwriting, but for the most part, I guess I feel like you could tell what I wrote. And I mean, I guess I know yeah. if I wrote it or not, but yeah. So where's the handwriting coming from? We don't know. It doesn't appear that Santos ever signed those citations. And plus, why would you write down two different middle names? Mm -hmm. Another layer of weird. Calkins claims to have taken Santos at 7.35 a.m. There were two witnesses there that said he did not leave any, like, he was gone after 7, like, 7.05 a.m. He was not there. So there's already, like, a weird gap in time. Where he said, no, I left the scene at 7.35. And they said it was definitely like 7 a.m. So where's this time period? So from 7.05 a.m. from where the witnesses said that Calkins left the scene to 8.53 a.m. Calkins, the police officer, I say police officer, sheriff's deputy was essentially off the grid. Nobody knows where he was. He's not very good at his job. Whatever he's trying to do. I know he's guilty, but like whatever he Yeah, did, this whole story is riddled, riddled with lies. Yeah. Like Calkins made up things like, oh, I was at an elementary school. I was doing this. But like it was all unsubstantiated. There was no, ev- maybe, but like nobody saw you. There's yeah. nothing, no reports or anything to prove that you were actually in those places. So there's an hour and 48 minutes that is an important period of time that we have no idea what happened to Felipe Santos. Um, Santos's brother filed a complaint against Calkins, um, but he was found as having done nothing wrong. So he was back out patrolling again, December 2nd, 2000. That was December 2nd, 2003. January 12th, 2004, we're not sure which time because there's a lot of inconsistencies since Calkins did not report this. Just January 12th, 2004, he stopped Terrence Williams who is a black man. Calkins said he was driving a white Cadillac, Terrence Williams was, and stopped him at 12.19 p.m., which is what he said a full week after the incident because he did not file it at the time. Of course. But there were three witnesses to this encounter that all have the same stories that do not match Stephen Calkins. 
All three witnesses said that he pulled over Williams before 10 a.m., not 12, 19. That it wasn't even 10 a.m. yet when he got pulled over. Um, It could have even been as early as 9 a.m. So again, a weird gap in time that Calkins clearly lies about. Uh, What one of the witnesses said was that Williams pulled over into a cemetery in front of an administrative building where one of the witnesses was standing. What the witness said was that the deputy had asked him to get out of the vehicle. He did. The deputy asked him to, for Williams to put his hands up in the air. He patted him down and then put him in his patrol car. Witness to this, okay? Which already seems like a weird escalation. Like you pulled him over, you asked him to get out, you had him put his hands up, pat him down, put him in your car. Like what happened? Yeah. How did that just all go down like that? Calkins claimed that he took Williams because his Cadillac wasn't working properly. He claimed this later. Uh, Williams's mother claims that the vehicle was in fine working order. There was nothing wrong with that Cadillac. Um, Calkins said that Williams had asked him for a ride to work, so that's why he took him. Again, Calkins claimed to have dropped him off at the Circle K. But if you were giving him a ride to work, he does not work at Circle K. So that already did not make any sense. He happened to work at the Pizza Hut over two miles from the Circle K. So like, why would you drop him off again at the same gas station where nobody seems to ever see you do these things? Wait, who worked at the Pizza Hut? Terrence Williams. Okay. The guy he pulled over. Santos called his foreman. Like they don't have foreman at Pizza Hut. No. (laughs) Sorry. This is all Williams. Okay. Are you following me? Yes. If I'm being confusing, I can... No, no, you're fine. You're fine. Okay. So dropping him off at Circle K already wasn't making sense. Um, Williams's mother also said her son would never have asked a police officer for a ride because he had already had run-ins and issues and frankly just didn't like or didn't trust police. Yeah. Um, So he never would have voluntarily asked a sheriff's deputy to take him to work. What did happen, which this also is super weird. It's super shady. Like I said, he never reported an arrest. Calkins called in the Cadillac hours later. He said that he found this Cadillac abandoned. Nothing about Terrence Williams. Nothing about taking guy? him to a patrol car. He, um, the quote, because he made a phone call and this phone call was recorded. Maybe he's, referring to the driver, out there in the cemetery and he'll come back and his car will be gone. Like, he literally said this car was abandoned. Maybe this person walked into the cemetery and he's going to come back and it's going to be gone. So that's not abandoned. <laughs> but this all caused suspicion over Calkins because, again, witnesses came forward and said, no, he seemingly arrested this guy, put him in his cop car, and then drove off. He completely denied for at first ever taking Williams in the back of his car. But then I guess eventually was like, oh, yeah, I gave that guy a ride to work. So I dropped him off at Circle K. But he works at Pizza Hut. So why did you take him to Circle K? Like, that doesn't make any sense. None of it makes sense. And it's all, like, trivial stuff. Like, yes, that matters if that is is the case of if his car wasn't functioning or mm-hmm. if the guy didn't have insurance or a license. You Again, know, the- he, there were valid reasons for both of these guys to pull them over yeah to if he wanted to arrest him he technically could have yeah he chose not to okay what i think happened is he chose to take the law in his own hands so what's also weird is cocken had a three-year arrest drought he had not arrested anybody in three years which was weird he had supposedly become and become disheartened with the justice system and he said it was like a revolving door explaining you arrest somebody they go back out on the street again like one of his partners had said like yes he is disheartened by this it was not well, it something feels like houston today but yes continue right no we know that we know the justice system is broken yeah right 
But that does not mean you go take the law into your own hands. And certainly, these men going missing, that in and of itself is an injustice. Yeah. So, did he take justice into his own hands? The story is so mysterious. Uh, Assistant U.S. Attorney Doug Malloy was investigating these disappearances and believed that they were hate crimes. Mm -hmm. Um, But the problem was, how do you prove that with no bodies and no evidence? Um, Stephen Hawkins was definitely caught in lies and had inconsistent statements, but that's it. Um, they did put tracking devices on his vehicle, which didn't lead to anything. They did forensic inspections, no evidence of, I mean, and nothing substantial came up. Uh, the FBI got involved and asked Calkin to answer questions in front of a federal jury about those disappearances, and he refused. Um, so there was no probable cause to lead to an arrest or anything. Nobody could even prove a crime had happened. Both men had families and children. Calkins did get fired from the sheriff's office. He was, at the very least, no longer a trustworthy defender of the law. And, like, that's what they said. Like, Yeah, if he's not even reporting stuff when it's happening as yeah. he's supposed to, you're just... You're bottom line you're not doing your job right so he did get fired um he stayed in florida until 2013 um and was working moved (laughs) right like Uh, innocent or guilty i'm out of here exactly do you want a piece of shit (laughs) yeah you all think i'm a murderer so yeah innocent or guilty why would you stick around like that's just weird yeah um but he did in 2013 that's like 10 years right yeah yeah he stayed there for another nine ten years Um, And he did that working for UPS when apparently he caused a scene at UPS and was escorted out and apparently did quit after that, um, but was probably going to be fired anyway. Around 2016, Calkins and his wife sold their home. His wife stood by him this whole time. I'm sorry (laughs) if this was my husband. I cannot imagine sticking around like that would be so hard, though. I can't imagine because every part of me would want to be like. I'm by your side no matter what. I love you. But the other but part But where are these guys? Like, yeah, what you tell me. We're not leaving this house till you tell me exactly what the fuck happened. Yes. And then we'll figure it out together. I mean, who knows what happens behind closed doors, but I just cannot imagine that kind of situation. Oh my God. I hope we're never in that situation or anyone I love. Yeah. That has to deal with what do we do next after your spouse may or may not have murdered. Yeah. Ew. So around 2016, they sold their home, moved to Iowa. Sorry, Iowa. That's the last known place we think he's still hanging out, and I think it's like Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Um, The FBI had been monitoring Calkins, um, and when they left, well, this is why I assume the FBI has been monitoring them, uh, because in 2016 when they left, the FBI reached out to the new owners who just bought the house and was like, can we please search that house? Oh my God, I would say heck yeah. Yeah. Uh, hell yeah, please search this house is what I'd be saying, because I don't want to yes. sit there on top of dead bodies or God knows what. Please check the house. Yeah. So the new owners, they said yes. There were some odd things, but again, nothing nothing that significant, I guess. So they brought in cadaver dogs, radar systems, forensic people. There was a concrete slab that settled differently than the rest of the structures on the property. They did try and get into it and they did find several pieces of black plastic bags and pieces of electrical cord that had been buried for over 10 years. Interesting. But because it was buried for over 10 years, it could not be tested for any kind of DNA evidence. But why are you burying black plastic bags and electrical cords? Yeah. Um, Terrence Williams was declared legally dead in 2009. 
Even worse, this still doesn't end well. After Williams' mother continuously took Calkins to court, as she should, I mean, you're trying to find answers, the judge ruled that Marsha Williams, the mother, and Terrence Williams' estate had to pay Calkins (gasps) $5,600 to pay his attorney fees. Because Yeah. (gasps) What kind of world do we live in? That's so sad. So I think... Part of that had to do with her legal team didn't get, like, documents and stuff turned in in time. And so the judge had to, like, dismiss this case. In which then Calkins' <gasps> attorney was like, you like, you know, you can me. pay for yeah. my fees then. That's heartbreaking. What the hell? Yeah. Both men still remain missing today. They, I mean, they, they have been high-profile cases, but no new leads, no anything. That's so sad. And those are just two of several yeah. missing people. Um, there was another one with a seven-year-old. I could I couldn't even get myself to to dive into that one because that just seemed really no. Like these two were grown men. Like yeah. I said, they had families. Santos. I mean, he had like a one-year-old daughter and loved being a dad. Mm, um, that's so sad. And so, of course, I think you know, Calkins or whomever was like, maybe he ran away. Maybe he wasn't a legal immigrant. Maybe he went back to Mexico. Like, no. You have a family here. Like, you wouldn't have just not said anything and then left. Yeah. And then Terrence Williams, too. He had a son, and he saw him regularly. He talked to his mom. His mom said he talked to me two to three times a day. He wouldn't just disappear. There was a body that was pulled out of the woods around the Everglades that they did end up identifying. I think his name was like Carlos Guerrero. I didn't write this down. They could not directly connect him to Calkins, but they did also find two other remaining body parts that they could not identify. Oh God. So it does make you wonder. This other guy that was identified, he had been arrested. He, I mean, he was like a known like drunk alcoholic. Uh, he'd gotten himself into some trouble before. I mean, nothing Nothing like murdery, like nothing like he was a huge felon, but he was just like a troublemaker. You know, what, like what the heck was that about? So he had been through the sheriff's deputy's office before, but not directly to Calkins. But if Calkins did have somebody involved with him, could that guy have killed Carlos? And could those other two, I'm saying body parts, like remains that were found, like could that, could that be Santos and Williams? Like, we just don't know. That's so sad. And wherever you are, Calkins, screw you, regardless you're lying about something. Yes, like, yes, whether it was, like, directly a murder or not. If you know something, like, these people had families. Yeah. So that one was kind of a tough one. There, Like I said, there are several missing cases of people that are connected to the Everglades. Um, This is all in Collier County, which is where the Everglades is located. Okay. But I wanted to end with something lighter. Thank you. Yeah, because we don't usually do, like, heavy missing cases and stuff like that. So our last story today has to do with the super mysterious cryptids of the Everglades. Ooh. So the first cryptid is the skunk ape. (laughs) The skunk ape is Florida Sasquatch. Uh, He is covered in red hair, seven feet tall, and smells horrible, hence the name Skunk Ape. Well, hopefully smelly smoke isn't coming out of his butt, too. No, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if he's a sprayer or just smelly. (laughs) His supposed home is the Lost City. Okay. And then people even, like, maybe that explains why people have gone missing there. Like, what happened to the Confederates that were there? What happened to the Seminoles that were there? Like, I don't know about Al Capone's people. Obviously, Al Capone didn't die there, but I doubt he was working in his, like, factories and, you know, operations very directly anyway. I mean, the Sasquatch had a... They had a deal. uh, Yeah, they had a deal going. Yeah. Skunk Ape has been making headlines as early as 1818. 
Wow. Um, but people have supposedly been talking about him since Europeans first colonized the region. Um, so the 1818 newspaper article talked about a man-sized monkey who harassed and stalked fishermen in the Apalachicola, uh, Florida, where there have been several experiences with skunk apes. So let's talk about a few run-ins. Um, 1929, there was a bat tower that was built in the Florida Keys, one bat of the tower. islands. Cool. It was it's really big. You could actually you should actually look up this bat tower. It's really interesting. Witnesses claimed that skunk ape came to the site, shook the tower, the bats came flying out, which spooked skunk ape, and he ran off into the woods. Uh, 1950s to 1970s had the largest amount of reports claiming to have seen skunk ape. 1963, a family living in a remote location claimed that skunk ape was spying on them through their windows. Can you imagine being a police officer at the time and you get a call from some like remote house out in the sticks and they're like, skunk ape was spying in my windows. Like, ma'am, how much? Who's going to draw the short straw to go out on this one? Yes, that would be tough. I would also be kind of scared too myself. (laughs) Be like, I know people like us. I'm going to go just so I can laugh, but what if in that small chance that yeah. I get torn well, this apart? Is, this next one is kind of weird. In the 1970s, two Palm Beach County Sheriff's deputies claimed to see Skunk Ape. Oh, that's funny. They said they were being stalked by him. They also reported that they followed his large footprints to a barbed wire fence that had been knocked down by Skunk Ape, which had some hair remains in it because it got caught in the barbed wire that they had recovered off the fence. And another officer claimed that he hit Skunk Ape with his car, which led people to forming groups and trying to find him, which... They didn't, in case you were wondering. So there have been police officers that do claim to see him also. That's so crazy. Which just makes it more weird. Does that make you think, though, like, her brother Will dressed up as an ape for Halloween. Like, what if someone put on that costume and they're like a six foot four dude and they're just had a few beers and they're like, I'm going to do my skunk ape thing today. (laughs) Shibby. (laughs) And then you went and got hit by a car and then scampered off. You're like, oh, shit. (laughs) Um, Skunk Ape has also been blamed on killing off livestock from some farmers. Um, 1977, they actually tried to pass legislation in Florida. God bless you, Florida. This makes me, this really tickled me. They tried to make it illegal to take, possess, harm, or molest, gross that you even need to say that, anthropoids and humanoid animals. And note, I said they tried to pass it because... That legislation did not pass. Oh my god! But it was out there. Writing that? No. (laughs) Don't molest humanoids. I just imagine a congressman being like, "The people of my district want to pass," and just like really working hard for that. Maybe it was just a congressman trying to make a name for himself. I don't know. That's pretty funny. Some pretty silly laws have been tried. Tell me about it. And some have passed. Um, So people have claimed sightings on bus tours of the Everglades. In 1997, an entire bus tour of 30 to 40 people claimed to have seen Skunk Ape on the tour. That's a drunk Florida man having a good time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's either like that happened or a lot of people lying collectively or yeah, somebody was like dressed like skunk, skunk ape. And did you say skunk man a second ago? Probably. Sorry. (laughs) One of the last major claims was in 2000 when a family said they woke up in the middle of the night to a lot of sounds on their deck in the backyard that sounded, they thought it was literally a drunk person just like throwing things around or maybe like raccoons or something, but they could hear like stomping and stuff. So I think that's why they thought it was like a drunk guy. 
being super clumsy, but it was not a drunk man, but was an ape-like creature throwing around furniture and anything else that was on the back deck. They did actually claim a picture. Did I say claim a picture? You did. I meant to say capture a picture. Uh, to my knowledge, they did not go off and say, like, that was skunk ape in our backyard. They actually thought it was just a large orangutan that uh, escaped from the zoo. But let me show you a picture because, I mean, it it looks like a legitimate picture, but... Is it skunk ape? I mean, that I don't know. That would scare me either way. Um, right. It's I'm something. Not sure. That's definitely something. But yeah, if I, I wouldn't go straight to creature we can't prove it exists. I would right. Say and they didn't. An they were like, I think an orangutan maybe escaped and was in her backyard. Something. Um, something that's was in their backyard. Uh, we'll put the picture on Instagram. That's interesting. I still think it's. Like, I could see myself, if I lived in Florida, dating a guy, go back to his house for the first time, snoop around, find this costume. I'm like, what is this? And he was like, well, my father, my great-grandfather, <laughs> we're a long line of pranksters. We are skunk apes <laughs> since the 1800s. It's this prank that's just gone on and on, and that's our family legend. Oh, my gosh. So it seems like skunk ape claims have died down, sort of. He did kind of make a resurgence during COVID, uh, but claims of sightings have gone down. He's now just kind of more of their mascot, kind of like how Sasquatch is. Like, there's not statues, but, you know, like there's, I don't know, what do you call them? They're not statues. Like collectibles, different. There's a lot of Sasquatch stuff out there because it's also just fun. Um, That's kind of how skunk skunk ape is. Yes. But if he is real, he is known to be shy. He doesn't, none of those stories were of him trying to hurt anybody. Um, He just likes to watch people from afar, but always seems to keep his distance. He seems to be more scared of people than anything else. So if you see Skunk Ape, take a picture and just, you know, you don't have to do anything to him because he's never trying to hurt anybody. Be nice. Even since the 1800s, there's no stories of him trying to harm anybody. He's definitely like touched a lot of cars. Yeah. Like there's, there was another claim. I didn't write down every story, but there was another claim of a man that said he came up behind him and pushed the car, but he's never like tried to physically hurt anybody. Wow. Um, people have also been reporting alligator men since the 1700s. Like literally they've been saying there's alligator men. So what is that? It's a humanoid race of half human, half alligator, about five feet long. Okay, um, is it standing like a human or crawling like a crocodile? Crocodile. Crocodile. I thought you just said crocodile. Um, <laughs> it, it's more like an alligator. Oh, that's creepy. With a human head. That's super creepy. It's really creepy. I actually have a picture I can okay. sh- I'm about to if show you. If it was the other way, I'd be like, that's just a person wearing alligator skin. No. <laughs> so they have green scales like a gator, limbs like a gator, webbed feet and toes, but they do have closer to a human face. They travel in packs and are highly dangerous. Uh, They supposedly can speak a sort of feral, barbaric language that's mostly howls and grunts. There's also stories of alligator men in New Jersey and Louisiana. Like, they're both cryptids that are talked about in those three states. Interesting. But the most famous one is Jake the Alligator Man, which is in Marsh's Free Museum in Long Beach, Washington. It was claimed that he was found in the Everglades, and he was legitimately purchased by the museum for $750 in 1967. Please let me I'm showing you a picture of him. Jake from State Farm? No. Jake the Alligator Man. Oh my goodness. That, like, is weird. Kind of makes me sad, and it's also really goofy. People are like, maybe it's experiments by the government. But I'm like, but the 1700s, that was not an experiment by the government. 
It's probably very well done taxidermy. Yeah. Let's just say that's what it is. Because I I can't get my mind to believe that. But I do think it's fun to read about those things. It's like that book from our childhood. Um, what was it called? Metamorphosis? or mm-hmm. more? It was always different species of a book series. I have no idea what you're talking about. Dang, that's going to bug me. I'll continue. So I only have one arbitrary anecdote. Okay. um, And that is the Burmese python. Has been for a while an invasive species in the Everglades. Back in the 1970s, people started releasing their Burmese pythons, probably once they became too big to feed, because they can get like 15 to 23 feet long. Do you realize how expensive that would be to feed? Because you have to give it like bigger mammals and stuff to eat. Yeah, we're going from little mice to, like, dogs. Yeah, (laughs) and they grow very quickly, too. Like, they're full-grown by eight, but in their first year, they can grow, like, out four to five feet. Anamorphous, that's what it was. Do you remember that? Oh, wait, I'm looking at the caterpillar book. Oh, no, it was like everyone was a different species. Like, that one's a horse. Okay, don't really remember that very well. That horse one is familiar, but that looked like something I would not have read. Yeah, I don't think I read it either, but that's definitely like stuck in my my brain hole because I always loved the the book fair. Oh yeah, I loved the book fair. Yes, um, definitely bought that one. You just went to Audible, <laughs> the dolphin one. <laughs> oh. You loved dolphins back then. I did. So the Burmese python are large constrictor snakes. So you do not want to run into them because they can easily make a meal out of you. Um, Like I said, they can grow 15 to 23 feet long. 23 is like on the longer side, like 15 to 19 feet is about average. But they eat regularly deer and alligator, like no problem eating an alligator. They have no predators in the Everglades. So they have been able to reproduce freely for decades, and they have done just that. So in 2017, the National Park Service stated that they were starting a python hunting program because they were so invasive and overpopulated in the area. That's insane. I mean, I hate hearing stuff like that, and I'm glad they saved the Everglades from draining it. But if there's too many pythons, they're going to start coming into homes, and you've got to put an end to it But then they're also taking out a lot of the... The species that live there and you're messing with the ecosystems because people put them there. They don't, they don't, they weren't naturally there. Yeah. I mean, it's a good environment for them. We'll go put them on Snake Island. That exists. They're different snakes. I was going to say, but does Snake Island even have any prey left? They're all poisonous snakes, so I bet the pythons would die. They would be the predator, I would think, because people are banned from going to Snake Island. Where's Snake Island? I'll have to follow up on that. Okay. But um so to conclude, the Everglades is a pretty rad place, um, home to many creatures and thirty-six endangered species. But it is a place that is so mysterious and holds many secrets that we will never know. And it's a place where a lot of people have gone missing. So it is a place to respect, be very careful. I didn't talk about it, but I started getting into some Reddit stories of weird things going on in the Everglades. There's even rumors of some kind of alligator cult where people wear alligator skins and crawl around like alligators to get people to stop on the road and then rob them or whatever sometimes the people have gone missing oh god again 
um, where their cars maybe are just found and the people aren't. Lock your doors always, guys. And, I mean, they even say you're not, it's really discouraged from driving Alligator Alley at night because it can be very dangerous. But next week, we will be more into the Bermuda Triangle and go more into the rest of the crazy things that happen there because this was just the tip of the triangle. Just the tip. Just the tip. I did want to just say Snake Island is an island in Brazil that has about two to 4,000 of the most venomous snakes in Latin America. You're like five feet from your microphone. Sorry, I was looking down. Um, where is it? I'm sorry. <laughs> South America? It's in, it's in Brazil. Oh, okay. But people are banned because um, you'll die immediately. There's like Was no it time. created for poisonous snakes or there's no. just a lot of poisonous snakes? They've just overpopulated so much because um, that island... I remember it uh, grows abundant bananas and people would always get bananas there, but then people just started dying because once you get bit, you have like 30 seconds. There's not even time to get help. Yeah, it is a pretty quick turnaround time. So thank you guys. For those that have sent us story ideas, please keep them coming. Uh, The world is a big place and we don't know all the cool haunted places out there. Um, So if you'd like to send us a recommendation or even an interesting real estate story, did you have a weird transaction? It doesn't have to be haunted. Like we like real estate. You can email us those stories at hauntedrepod at gmail.com. Or like I said, send us a recommendation of a place you'd like us to cover. Uh, Go follow us on Instagram at haunted.real.estate. And please, if you could rate and review us on your preferred podcast, I never say that right, (laughs) podcast platform, we'd be so appreciative. And our Venmo, if you are feeling so generous, is at hauntedre. Make sure if you were to send us any monetary amount that your heart sees fit, um, Please leave us a property you'd like us to cover in the comments and or tell us where you're from and we will find something for you. And lastly, if you are looking for an agent in the Houston market, give myself or Casey, my husband and partner, a try. We'd be honored to assist you in your home buying or selling needs. You can still email us at hauntedrepod at gmail.com and we will get you to the right place. I hope you have an amazing week. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. And thanks, Ashley. I thought that was a really great episode. Oh, I thank thoroughly you. enjoyed I it. I really enjoyed researching it. And there's, I, I would love to go to the Everglades carefully. Yeah. But <laughs> it seems like a place in time that you could just like, it's, Next it's time got you a visit vibe. the Florida family, just make some They're in the panhandle. Oh. They're in the panhandle. This is down at the coast. So not it's the tip. not the tip. Yeah, not a not very close, but yeah, maybe if we ever go to Miami or something, we go to the Everglades. I would make a point to go here. Yeah. Well, thank you and thank you listeners. We love you. Ta-ta for now.